The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In the Psychologist's Chair with host Dr. Raymond Hamden. Our program will feature global guests joining Dr. Hamden for a psychological interview. And through their experiences, you will explore the human depth of understanding their purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Raymond Hamden. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden, and you are in the psychologist's chair. This program had the privilege of a debut guest. The VIP guest in 2003, June, was... Her Excellency, Benazir Bhutto. Since then, she's been assassinated. Some say she actually died of a cerebral hemorrhage. Yet the death of Benazir Bhutto occurred on 27 December 2007 in Pakistan. She had been Prime Minister twice, between 1988 and 1990, and 1993 to 1996. Then the leader of the opposition, Pakistan People's Party, she had been campaigning ahead of the elections due in January 2008. Shots were fired at her after a political rally. A suicide bomb was detonated immediately. When we look at the life of Benazir Bhutto, we're looking at a timepiece. It can be played any time to learn about her life as she tells it. Today's guest is Her Excellency Benazir Bhutto, the eldest child of Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. She was born June 21, 1953, in Karachi. She attended many schools throughout her youth, and at the age of 15, she passed her O-level examinations. In April 1969, she got admitted to Harvard University's Radcliffe College. In June 1973, Benazir graduated from Harvard University with a degree in political science. After graduating from Harvard, she joined Oxford University in the fall of 1973. Just before graduation, Benazir was elected to the outstanding committee of the most prestigious Oxford Union Debating Society. In 1976, she graduated in politics, philosophy, and economics. In the autumn of the same year, Benazir returned once again to Oxford to do a one-year postgraduate course. In January 1977, she was elected the president of the Oxford Union. In June 1977, she returns to Pakistan. She wanted to join the Foreign Service, but her father wanted her to contest the assembly election. As she was not yet of age, Benazir Bhutto assisted her father as an advisor. Many political situations she and her family had to suffer for several years until the age of 35 when she was the youngest and first woman prime minister to lead a Muslim nation in modern age. During her first term, she started People's Program for Economic Uplift of the Masses. Benazir Bhutto also lifted a ban on student and trade unions. The PPP government hosted the fourth SAARC summit held in Islamabad in December 1988. She returns to power by winning the October 1993 elections. The PPP had won the largest share with 86 seats and formed a new government with the help of alliances. But her own nominated president dismissed her government again in November 1996 on corruption charges. Her publications include Daughter of the East and Foreign Policy Perspectives. Today's guest, Her Excellency Benazir Bhutto. In your published poem, The Story of Benazir, from Marvi 
to Marel and Shaw Latif. It was written June 21, 2003. You wrote, When the world was still to be born, when Adam was still to receive his form, then my relationship began. When I heard the Lord's voice, a voice sweet and clear, I said, Yes, with all my heart, and formed a bond with the land I love. When all of us were one, my bond then began. An exile now by destiny, I am nearer home than my heart's beat. I wonder, when will I be free to return to Larkana? Your Excellency, describe your childhood, the childhood and youth that fosters such bonding between Pakistan and you. I was a child of independence. I was born five years after Pakistan first gained independence. And I grew up in a climate when we valued our newly formed state. I also grew up in a political family, in a family that had been dedicated uh, to working for the people. And so the combination of growing up in an exterior environment of uh, treasuring one's homeland and an interior uh, environment where serving one's people was considered an important social contribution I seemed to form an attachment and an attachment that stayed with me. Your family seems to have been in a political life, and certainly by the definition that you've just alluded to, it seems that your family believes that political positions are to serve others. That's right. My father always said that uh, to whom God has given much, much is demanded. I think he was quoting this from someone. But he always said we had a debt to pay back to society. And I remember when I went to Harvard University for my education, he said to me that the money that I earn that sends you to Harvard comes from the work of laborers and farmers, poor farmers. And when you get this education, you must come back and try and change their lives. What a brilliant concept in the common good. It seems like your father may have been one of the few thinkers in the political arena who believed in working for the common good, meaning helping everybody at all levels and appreciating everybody's tasks. That's right. My father had an opportunity of being part of the East and also having traveled to the West. And he saw how the democracies had grown. And he very much wanted me to learn about societies that were open and tolerant and allowed their people to prosper. He took a very big risk sending me to America because at that time very few Muslim women were sent across two oceans to study in a foreign land. Your political life was quite impressive. You entered the arena of politics in 1977, I believe. When did you know that politics would be your destiny? I had two transformatory moments. Uh, The first when my father was sentenced to death and we went for our last meeting with him and he said to me, I set you free. You have been in prison, you have suffered much and you are so young. Now you've done your duty to your country, you've done your duty to your family, you can go to Europe, live in Geneva or Paris and get on with your life. And I said, no, Papa, I will carry on the work that you wanted to accomplish for our people. And We reached out our hands through the prison bars and I remember touching his hand and his hand touching mine. And that was a very important moment in my life. But I thought that I would be working through my mother. Then my mother fell ill and had to go abroad. And when I returned in 1986, I realized that the burden of carrying on the political work for a democratic Pakistan, where the government worked for the alleviation of poverty, had fallen on my shoulders. Many individuals of a minority will report that they have to spend energy many times more than the average just to prove their value and strength as a woman and head of state. What were the difficulties to prove that you were as good as a man in the same post? Well, I um, thought I had to have very hawkish policies on certain issues to show the men that I was as strong as they were because when I was growing up, the leaders, the women leaders, were often women in a warlike mask. For instance, we had Mrs. Indira Gandhi, who had led her people to victory in Bangladesh. We had Mrs. Golda Meir, who again, as the leader of Israel, which had won many military wars, uh, was there. And then we had Mrs. Thatcher and the Falklands, 
war. So in my concept, a woman had to be tough and she had to be able to deal with situations like wars. But it was a conflict within myself because I felt that a leader inside me, I felt that a leader had to nurture life and provide peace and progress. And it was only after serving two terms in office and having been in power that I evolved into a person of my own right and decided that I don't have to be tough. I don't have to prove to the military that I can stand up and lead them to war. In fact, the right remains of the people to live in peace and I must be the leader who can lead them to peace. Coming from an Eastern Islamic background and being educated in the West, the University of Oxford and Harvard. These reflect two distinct cultures. What effect does a Western education have on your political views and the goals that you have for your own country? Well, uh, the Western education taught me about freedom. In my country, people went to prison for criticizing the dictator or the president who happened to be a dictator. But in America, I was there at the time of the Watergate um, crisis, and I saw the American people bring down their own president. It was simply amazing to see the way the American system uh, functioned, to see the way the parliament functioned. I remember taking part in anti-war demonstrations, and uh, I remember the fact that people could go up to their parliamentarians and say, stop this war. And for saying that, they weren't hauled away and, and taken to prison. And I thought, what a contrast. In our country, we are not entitled to have our views. Because if we have views, depending on how strong those views are, we are either, either our life is taken away or our liberty is taken away or our property is taken away, our job is taken away, and ultimately even our country is taken away. And then I thought that Western societies are all prospering, whereas the entire Muslim world seems to be, even the rich countries, seem to be unsure in which direction they are going. And I felt that really we are all God's creatures. And uh, for me, it became very important to bring back to my country the values of uh, tolerance, of accommodation, of pluralism that I had seen as a student at Harvard and at Oxford. In these experiences that you've had, you found, it sounds like you're saying, a blend between your Islamic background and the Western education. It was not a contradiction. I did not find it a contradiction. I had a very. I was brought up in a Muslim society, and I was brought up by Muslim parents. I learned the Quran from a very early age. We had a teacher come, and religious teaching was part of our life. Saying prayers was part of our life. But I was always taught that the message of Islam was against discrimination. Yet when I looked at Muslim societies, I found discrimination, either political or ethnic. I was taught that men and women are equal in the eyes of God. But when I looked around at the Muslim societies, I saw that women were discriminated against. And so I found a contradiction between what to me seemed the message of Islam as a religion of emancipation and to what I saw in the Muslim societies. And I took my inspiration from the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, from his wife. She was a working woman. And as I said, if the Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, can marry a working woman, why do Muslim societies, or at least in Pakistan, say that women should not work, that women should look, stay in the four walls of their house and should not be seen, and that women are the source of evil? If they go out of the home, they will tempt men. I, I just found that such a contradiction. You're listening to a pre-recording of Her Excellency Benazir Bhutto in the psychologist's chair. We'll be right back. making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv You are listening to In the Psychologist Chair with Dr. Raymond Hamden and his featured guests. We'd love to hear from you via email at info at inthepsychologistchair.info. That email address again is info at inthepsychologistchair.info. Now, back to Dr. Raymond Hamden. You're listening to a pre-recording of Her Excellency Benazir Bhutto in the Psychologist Chair. We find in today's world that there are many individuals that will influence us. You mentioned your father. You mentioned uh, the Prophet Muhammad. In your educational experiences and your life experiences, who would you be qualifying as those so-called gurus that have influenced Benazir Bhutto, her thoughts, her feelings, and her behavior? In uh, religion is religion, and I see that as something different. I see that as giving one a set of values. But, for example, for me, from religion, I got a set of values of peace and that the essential message was one of equality and against discrimination. But in terms of my gurus, when I was growing up as a child, I had two heroes. One was President Jamal Nasser of Egypt, and one was Robert Kennedy of America. I thought that Jamal Nasser gave to his people a sense of pride and of self-respect and of dignity and made them feel that they were not inferior because they were non-white, but that they were equal to everybody else. And when he built the Aswan Dam, I thought that here is a leader who is trying to make his country uh, self-reliant. And Robert Kennedy, I admired because I felt he was a man who wanted to end the oppression against the blacks or the Afro-Americans, uh, as uh, now people uh, are called. And I thought that this was a man who gave his life and he, he was so idealistic he was young and he was dashing and he had this dream of making an America that was egalitarian and free of oppression of certain ethnic um, groups. So these were my two gurus as I was growing up. That's interesting. You talk about President Jamal Abdel Nasser, who was the president of Egypt, and you talk about Robert Kennedy, who was the attorney general of the United States, indicating that you don't have to be a president to make a change that people at different levels of society and different levels of government can actually affect a very positive change for the betterment of many, many people. You are right. I actually think that leaders are only what their people make them. And I feel that the people who really matter, for example, in my own life, I am today known all across the world, but I don't think it's due to me. I think I'm known all around the world because of the workers of the Pakistan People's Party. They stood by me. They fought for me. They strengthened my hand. And because they are with me today, I am known over the world. Otherwise, I would not be known. So the true heroes and heroines are the ordinary people. And people who, for example, for me, the true heroes and heroines are people who are teachers and people who are doctors. Because it's the teachers who influence minds. And it's the doctors who save lives. Let's visit past again at the University of Oxford. You were there from 1973 to 1977. What were your personal goals, socially, recreationally, when you were in university? Well, I was at university. I wanted to join the Foreign Service of Pakistan. 
I wanted to become a diplomat. I wanted to be posted to either Washington or London. And I saw myself as having uh, these wonderful parties where people from the political life and the social life and the intellectual life, the academic world would all get together and we would discuss the great issues of the world. So that was really my kind of ideal. I never thought I'd go into politics. And while I was there, I joined um, the United Nations Youth and Student Association. And I worked with Peter Mendelssohn, who later on became a cabinet minister in, in Britain. The first person that I met when I went to Oxford was Barbara Margolis, now Roche, who is the junior home minister in Britain. So it was an exciting time of people who were politically active. And I was, I joined the Conservative Club and I joined the Labour Club because my friends from the Conservative Party wanted me to vote for them in the elections and my friends in the Labour Party wanted me to vote for them. <laughs> Quite a the flexible elections. background. Yes, but I myself uh, went into the Oxford Union Debating Society and uh, I learned to debate at the Oxford Union Debating Society. My father had told me that he very much wanted me to learn uh, speaking skills from the debating society. So I went there reluctantly, but I loved the life. Everybody would dress up on a Thursday evening in white tie and tails and the girls had to all dress up in fancy uh, clothes and so it was you know we were all pretending to be grown up when we were really students in jeans. Do you find that you're still a conservative part to your life that you prefer the conservatism more than the liberal or do you see yourself very much in the moderate and you can go either way liberal or conservative not just in your political life but also in your personal life? I'm a moderate person I don't like extremes of anything. I don't like extreme cold weather and I don't like extreme hot weather. <laughs> in all my, I don't mm. like food that is extremely hot and spicy mm. or food that I'm really a person who is very moderate. I do believe in tradition in the sense that I uh, like the family values and I like the fact that we have close family relations. We go to each other's weddings and we are always with each other at deaths. We teach our children to respect um, their elders. So those values are important to me. But at the same time, the values of competitiveness, of entrepreneurship, of motivation, of reaching for the stars uh, is very important, which I learned that spirit of competitiveness out in the West. So both. Benazir Bhutu is a mother. You are still in the political limelight. You have business and work responsibilities. You have family and friends. Do you have time or do you make time for a balance in your life, work recreation, family, and friends? I uh, make time for my children. They come first in making time. And I went once to a seminar on life and work balance and how it was important for people to have life and work balance. And I hope that they find an equation. But in my own life, I found that there is no such thing as work-life balance. If you want to reach the top, you have to go the extra mile. You have to put the extra effort. And if you make that extra effort and put in that extra time, only then can you achieve, your, at least for myself. I hate to disappoint others. So I make time for the children, but I find often that there is very little time for my friends or very little time for my husband or very little time for my own self. In your personal life, when you want to express yourself, do you prefer expressing yourself openly and freely, or do you prefer to keep your thoughts and your feelings to yourself until you've had a chance to analyze them to yourself, and then you announce to the world what it is that you've been thinking and feeling? Unfortunately for me, I like to come out immediately with what I'm thinking. <laughs> unfortunately. Well, I say unfortunately because my nanny would always say, count to ten when I was growing oh, okay. up, <laughs> and she would always say to me, sleep on something before you get up and talk about it. And I feel that that's the right way to approach life. But the way my mind works, I like to work through people with problems. So if somebody says something to me, I like to give whatever is my first reaction so that they will work with me through to what they're trying to tell me. Whereas if I keep quiet, I don't really know what they're trying to tell me. Again, focusing on your personal life, do you have a preference about the way you perceive life. Do you, see, do you see that life should be, give me the facts, give me the details, or do you also prefer or only prefer the intuitive side that says, let's be creative, let's be imaginative, let's not get stuck with any details or facts? Where do you tend to be on that kind of a continuum in your perception of life? I was brought up in the rational age. 
Now we are entering a new age of creativity where Harry Potter is telling each child to delve into their deepest fantasies. Mm-hmm. But when I was growing up my hero was Pico the perfect renaissance man. Mm-hmm. And this was all about thought and rationality and logic. So I do have a very strong intuitive sense but I never act on intuition. I like to act on the facts and the figures and I like to act on the basis not necessarily of what I think but what is the consensus and what are the recommendations. Ultimately, I do intervene at times at about 10% time. I will intervene with my own judgment in party affairs. But 90% of times it will be what is the consensus. Again in your personal life when it comes to making decisions Are you the kind of person who says I'm not going to allow my emotions to be part of the decision process. I'm going to be as objective and fair as possible. Or do you find in your personal life that you do impose your personal values and you do get emotional about decision making situations? I am an emotional person but not where decision making is concerned. I see myself everyone has a self picture of themselves. and for me being just and fair is very important i think in life you get back what you give out and so i was brought up to be just and fair i was brought up to be patient and to persevere and for me being just and fair whether it's to my children whether it's to my husband whether it's to my family is very important i do get emotional i may take a decision which will hurt me emotionally but i will take it because i think it's just and fair very well put The last question on your personal life in this uh, hierarchy of questions that has to do with you personally because many times people don't know you personally they see you as a political figure only not realizing that there is a human being inside that brilliant brain that can evolve with her children with her friends in many other facets of life so let's talk about your attitude about life. Are you the kind of person who says I have to have things in a planned, decisive, orderly way or in your personal life can you also be spontaneous and flexible? Which tends to be your preference? I'd like to be spontaneous and flexible, but when you have time constraints, an orderly life is really the only one that you can live. And with me I was very much regimented even as prime minister. I used to have regular uh, cabinet meetings every Monday. was a cabinet meeting day every tuesday was a press conference day every uh, alternative tuesday was press and part of it was diplomats every wednesday and thursday was tour day so i used to be a very regimented person and everybody knew where i was going to be on a particular time but i think that if you're regimented you get things done we took decisions when i was prime minister of pakistan and i find afterwards the decisions were not taken because there is a lack of a uh, regular meetings regular decision taking even in my personal life i'm very regimented uh, the time i get up then what i do how i have to first read my newspaper then i have to first go and see whether to my office whether there's any important message and then i have to take my um meetings then i have to go and have see my mother at lunch so i'm very regimented i'm sort of try and make the best use of my time you're listening to a pre-recording of her excellency benazir bhutto in the psychologist chair we'll be right back making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World or Android Market. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities. 
securities and real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit voiceamerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. Voiceamerica.tv. You are listening to In the Psychologist Chair with Dr. Raymond Hamden and his featured guests. We'd love to hear from you via email at info at in the psychologist chair dot info. That email address again is info at in the psychologist chair dot info. Now, back to Dr. Raymond Hamden. You're listening to a pre recording of Her Excellency Benazir Bhutto in the Psychologist Chair. Your political life created that kind of boundary. Maybe even limitations would be another term for that. This kind of contradiction in your preference, did that cause you frustrations? I know, can't say it caused me frustration because I accepted it. But I do know that when I go to um, America, for instance, which is so vast and I'm free of the constraints of telephones and appointments and interviews and computers and secretaries and messages. It's a wonderful feeling of being free of any burden. Nobody knows who I am and I can do what I want, when I want, at what time and without being ordered. So in a sense, I'm a lucky person. My work life is very ordered. But when I go for my lecture series to America, I have the opportunity to be flexible and spontaneous. Look at life in the balance that we mentioned earlier. I remember Dwight Eisenhower being President of the United States in 1952. I was three years old then. And even at that young age, I can remember he loved to go out on the golf course. And actually, I wonder if a lot of United States government work got done on the golf course. We can also remember other leaders in the world, like, for instance, Bill Clinton, who loved to play the saxophone. We remember other leaders who had various kinds of hobbies. And this was their way of going brain silent for a short while, maybe to rejuvenate physically, psychologically. What would be your moment of rejuvenation for just Benazir? Not the prime minister, not the mom, not the businesswoman, not the friend or the daughter, but just Benazir. I love reading. So for me, if I have time, the fun thing is to get a biography and to read a biography. I love reading biographies, especially of women who uh, were in government or were in power about their histories. Right now I'm reading a book called The Begums of Bhopal. It's about a tiny little state in uh, India and how hidden from all of us and hidden from the eyes of history were these four powerful women who basically ran the state as um, regents. So I love reading books and whenever I have time, especially on aeroplanes, I will read books. So that's my main joy and that's my main happiness. I wish I could go to the golf course but fame comes at a particular price and I find that I am recognized and if I go into a shop or if I go to a golf course or if I go to the club people think I'm there to meet them so I don't really get time for myself or for the friends. People will come up and they start chatting to me. I like to take my children for instance out on Fridays for a meal. They'll say can I have your autograph? Can I have a photograph? And they'll make small conversation. So I'm not, I don't really get relaxed because people, I still know that I'm being watched. But when I'm sitting there in my own room with my own book, it's time for me. Do you and your family have anyone in your lives that you could have come over to your house or go over to their house, T-shirt, blue jeans, barefoot, sit on the floor, eat pizza, and play card games, board games? Well, we do it in our own house. But I think we'd be too scared to do it in anybody else's house in case the <laughs> photograph landed up in one of the newspapers. But we do do it in our own house. My children and I like to sit there and play Scrabble with them. 
Or I like to sit and play. We play cards or Scrabble. And we do like to have pizzas. And of course, uh, when I'm in London and I take my children out, I like to wear jeans. I think that I fit into the crowd. If I went out with a white butter on my head, I doubt my children and I would have very any privacy. <laughs> you like to read. Do you like to write? Writing is a difficult subject, you know. Sometimes the words just come. And sometimes they refuse. There was a period in my life for the last, between 2001 and 2002, when I wrote and wrote and wrote, sometimes two or three articles a week, and the words just flowed. And then something happened last November, and the words all dried up. So writing is very difficult. I just feel that sometimes the words come, and sometimes they refuse. In the book, Daughter of the East, you went into details about the hardest moments do you feel writing about these events that occurred allowed you to look at them differently? Kind of like a catharsis. Very much so. Writing about emotional aspects of one's life is very traumatic. I remember just talking about it. I had help with the book and just talking into the tape recorder how much I would cry, how much the emotions would come out because I would relive those moments. Otherwise, I refused to relive unhappy moments that have taken place after I've written the book. So one has to relive, and in reliving, it is a catharsis. The pent-up emotions come out. You feel you've dealt with it, and now you can move on. Did you reach a closure with some of these hurtful memories? Yes, I think I reached a closure with the, the help, hurtful memories, although my father's assassination is still too vivid. My brother's death is still uh, too vivid. But, of course, I have reached closure because I look at it now in a different way than the immediacy that there was before I wrote the book. And then many other things have happened in my life. And I've learned to cope by closing the chapter on the past and moving on. In a way, that's my weakness because I refuse to confront past hurts. I feel that if I do confront past hurts, then I will be living in the past and that there's so much to do in life that I have to get on with it. My nanny used to always say, also say when I was growing up, that when you laugh, the world laughs with you. And when you cry, you cry alone. So I don't want to sit there and think about sad things that happened. I want to move on because I think life is a precious gift and I want to live life. Benazir Bhutto, you're in the psychologist's chair. With these experiences that you've had in your history that are still difficult to have to confront openly, do you find that you still go through moments of depression, anxiety, maybe even hypervigilance of being afraid something like those terrible moments will reoccur? Do you ever have exaggerated startle responses that if the telephone rings and you're not sure from where, uh-oh, could this be bad news again? I do. I do have... Um, not on the big things, but on the little things. I hate the sound of the phone. I hate unexpected phone calls. I prefer all calls to be properly choreographed through my office so I know when somebody is calling and for what they're calling. But any unexpected phone call uh, makes me jump. Any unexpected sound in the night or even in the day if somebody comes up and I haven't seen them makes me jump because when the commandos raided my uh, home in the early hours of the morning to arrest my father and um, they jumped into my room and I woke with a little sound so those things just don't go I just jump and you know I, I wish I could stop it but it's embedded somewhere deep down but otherwise I manage on the bigger issues to deal with them it's those little issues now for example since my mother has fallen ill um, this year she's fallen ill three times in January, March and again in June and those are very difficult for me now because I'm so concerned that something could happen to her that I find it very difficult to sleep at, at night you know, a little sound wakes me up is everything alright? If anybody comes and knocks on my door, I don't know whether it's my child or whether it's someone coming to tell me something so. This is called post-traumatic stress disorder It's not a terrible clinical diagnosis. It's a normal thing for normal people. Post-traumatic stress disorder could occur from any major traumatic event. That is death experience, near-death experience, or the death of someone else. It could be because of one losing their physical integrity or their psychological integrity. Your life 
as a political figure well known internationally has had losses throughout it personal losses political losses maybe some losses of your own sense of freedom and integrity as a human being what is it that keeps you from giving up well what doesn't give up i was taught never to give up i remember when i went with my father to uh, president nixon there was a state visit and my father introduced me to dr henry kissinger and he said uh, to dr kissinger my daughter is a fighter she's a fighter like me and those words stayed with me i was taught to fight for what one believes in i believe in a democratic pakistan and it's not power that's important to me it's the destiny of my country it's its future direction i'm committed to democracy and to the belief that democracy brings development when i was prime minister of pakistan i saw the investment pouring because we were a stable democratic nation so i have that commitment to rise above my own sorrows and to invest in an idea that i believe in you faced a lot of difficulties in your political career and people who are in that chosen career will also know that you're not going to please everybody all the time you will have enemies some will even say that you know you're doing a good job when you do have enemies because there are those who will object to you regardless of whether you're right or wrong because what's more important to them is expanding upon their beliefs regardless of what anyone else's beliefs may be they may be fundamentalist radical it doesn't even matter but with the house arrest with the imprisonment now exile would you encourage your children into the political arena that's a very tough question because as a mother i don't want them to go into politics at all but at the same time when i see their interest in my own life i feel it would be wrong for me to stop them so i've reached a middle way i've told my children that you have to first get educated you have to first get a job and then afterwards when you're settled then you can think about what you really want to do and that there are different ways of serving people you can serve people by elective office you can serve people through community work you can serve people through research work so i'm trying to broaden the choices that they could have but i would very much like them to serve people as you assess your half century long life thus far what was your saddest moment i would say the saddest moment was definitely the murder of my father you're listening to a pre-recording of her excellency benazir bhutto in the psychologist chair we'll be right back making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World or Android Market. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities. in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now. and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. You are listening to In the Psychologist Chair with Dr. Raymond Hamden and his featured guests. We'd love to hear from you via email at info 
at inthepsychologistchair.info. That email address again is info at inthepsychologistchair.info. Now, back to Dr. Raymond Hamden. You're listening to a pre-recording of Her Excellency Benazir Bhutto in the Psychologist Chair. Well, let's go to the other side now. What is your happiest moment? Well, I've been lucky. I've had lots of happy moments. So it's very difficult for me to count those happy moments. I think that life is a kaleidoscope of happy moments, different, different happy moments. When I won the elections, when I got married, when I had my children, when I went to the White House, I remember I used to walk the corridors of the Congress in 1984, trying to tell them about democracy, and then going back in a motorcade to the same place where you've been trunching in the rain. The little, little things that give you happiness, walking in the garden, getting an unexpected gift of flowers. Happiness is, uh, happiness is a strange thing. It, it's fleeting. It comes and it goes. And you can only know happiness if you know sadness. And I think that because I have known tragedies, my triumphs have always been so full of happiness for me. And not just, uh, not just for me. I've seen my triumphs as being more than my triumphs. I've seen them as being triumphs of the workers of the PPP and of the people that we fought for. I've had happiness like the government froze all my funds and the government froze all my funds at one stage. Um, a man came to see me who was very, very poor. And he said to me that all the people in our village got together and uh, he pulled out of his pocket a check and they brought me money and they were such poor people. Mm. And it brought me such happiness to see that the love they had for me. I was once traveling in an airplane and the stewardess just hugged me and hugged me and hugged me. And I didn't know why, why she was crushing my bones so much. Mm. And she said to me that, you know, the only time my family had a job was during the PPP government. And that gave me happiness. So there's so many little, little moments in my life where there have have been, uh, which have been happy moments because I've seen other people and how they feel about me. And I guess what gives me strength is the love and the support that I have from the Pakistani community. You're a brilliant stateswoman. You're a loving mother. You're an excellent manager of the business affairs in which you can moderate the many different aspects of situations that you have going on. You're also a good friend, and you're very polished in your decorum, socially, personally, as well as in the political world. What is it that you would tell people who seek an opportunity to make a mark in life? What is your secret? What would you tell them is the mark in life? Never to give up if you believe in something never to give up. I remember when I was a student at Radcliffe and Martina Horner was the president and there was a lot of discussion on an essay that we thought she had written about why women fail. They said that when women are just about to reach the top, there is something in them psychologically and traditionally and socially from the background of history that tells them that we as women cannot succeed. And so they hold themselves back rather than giving themselves that extra push. So I would tell people, give yourself that extra push. Don't let a setback put you down. Try and try and try again, and you'll succeed. Her Excellency Bonazir Bhutto. In her political life, her preference is to be practical, realistic, matter-of-fact, with a natural head for administrative strengths. Not interested in subjects she sees no interest for, but applies herself when necessary. She's proven to be organized and runs activities and nations. She definitely makes a great administrator of a nation. Groups that have a meaning and a purpose for the common good. In her personal life, she's warm, enthusiastic, high-spirited, ingenious, and imaginative. She's able to do almost anything that interests her. She's quick with a solution for any difficulty and ready to help anyone with a problem. She's able to find ways to improve and delegate 
to reach a level of excellence in her life and that of others whom she knows she affects. Born in 1953 in Pakistan, by the age of 16 she enters Harvard University and later goes on to Oxford University. She makes a mark then and today makes a mark. A woman of fortitude and endurance, a woman of excellence. Thank you, Your Excellency Benazir Bhutto, for being in the psychologist's chair. The assassination of Benazir Bhutto occurred on 27 December 2007 in Pakistan. Bhutto, twice Prime Minister of Pakistan from 1988 to 1990 and 1993 to 1996, and then leader of the opposition Pakistani People's Party, had been campaigning ahead of elections due in January 2008. Shots were fired at her after the political rally, and a suicide bomb was detonated immediately following the shooting. She was declared dead at 1,816 minutes local time. Twenty-four other people were killed by the bombing. Bhutto has previously survived a similar attempt on her life that killed at least 139 people after her return from exile two months earlier. Though early reports indicated that she had been hit by shrapnel or a gunshot, the Interior Ministry subsequently backtracked from its previous claim. However, a follow-up investigation by Scotland Yard found that while gunshots were fired, they were not the cause of death, agreeing with the Interior Minister's original assessment that the explosion forced her head into the roof of the vehicle. Her background includes a lot of different in the problems that have arised with political people and their personal lives. No different than many, Benazir Bhutto was a martyr to some and another dead politician to others. But the cause of her death is still in discussion and in debate. Some commentators have suggested that this debate has been motivated by attempts to define Bhutto's legacy. Perhaps Bhutto would be considered a martyr if she died by gunshot, but not if she died by hitting her head following a bomb blast. Others have asserted that the arguments against a death by gunshot were instead a blunt criticism that she was not adequately protected. Initial reports based on Pakistani Interior Ministry information reported that Bhutto was killed by a gunshot wound to the neck. Others, like her security advisor for the Pakistan People's Party, suggested that the killer opened fire at Bhutto, left the rally, and had he left her shot in the neck and chest before he detonated the explosives he was wearing. December 28, however, the cause of Bhutto's death became less clear. And today, whether she died a martyr or not, her life is one to be remembered. We're very fortunate to have had Her Excellency Benazir Bhutto agree to be the debut guest, the VIP guest, in the psychologist's chair. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden. Until the next time... Goodbye, everyone. Thank you again for joining us this week for In the Psychologist's Chair. Please join Dr. Raymond Hamden for another edition next Tuesday at 9 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until we speak again, hope you enjoy your week.